Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is poet Jennifer Moxley reading from her work as part of the Yale Collection of American Literature Reading Series held at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library on April 23, 2009. The poet is introduced by Nancy Kuhl, curator of the Yale Collection of American Literature. Jennifer Moxley is the author of five books of poetry, including The Line, Often Capital, The Sense Record, Imagination Verses, and most recently, Clampdown, published this year by Flood Editions. Her memoir, The Middle Room, was published in 2007. She has translated several books of poetry from the French, uh, from, excuse me, several books of poetry from the French by poet Jacqueline Rissett, uh, and she is the poetry editor of The Baffler and a contributing editor of The Poker. She is an associate professor at the University of Maine, and I'm especially pleased to have her here just on the edge of the publication of Clampdown because it was um, after listening to a recording of, of Jennifer reading Clampdown that I decided we must have her come and read here. So, congratulations. In her poetry, her translations, and her editorial work, Jennifer Moxley has established herself at the forefront among the poets of her generation. And in all her work, be it poetry or criticism or memoir, Moxley invest investigates the difficult lyricism that marks our age, quote, evoking a world, one critic writes, in which Eros appears outside a two-car garage. Sounding the difficult measure of language that attempts to navigate the, navigate the dark and expansive, the sometimes treacherous, the possibly impenetrable space between you and I, Moxley explores the intricacy of speech, what she calls our, quote, strange horizontal orbits, but she is invested, too, in the intimacy, immediacy, and intrinsic tension of the poetic line. In Moxley's work, we see that the poet's task in inheriting the traditions of poetic address and lyric form is not to merely accept, but to continually test and challenge what has come before, to enable the art to earn its place in the present tense. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Moxley. Thank you, Nancy. And thank you to everyone for coming in on this beautiful day to listen to poetry. I'm going to start and read several poems from my new book, Clamp Down, and then I'm going to finish with some unpublished poems that I've written since this book. This is called The Fountain. Women do not love as men do, or so we're told by adults who do not remember the gelatinous yearning of 12-year-olds, not for proposals, but just to get off. As a girl, I cruise like a boy in daylight in open-air spaces, looking for willing partners. They were so easy to find. I can't help but think that though I was sent indoors long ago, domesticated by age, they are out there still, young boys by the hundreds awaiting seduction. When I turned 18, I could no longer see them, the street, the parking lot, the convenience store, all empty. Unconcerned about return, I longed for access to their bodies. What I knew about desire was its weakness, the droopy beauty of an embarrassed youth. When late on a Sunday afternoon, you make him break into the school john in order to cuff his girlish ankles in a sea of moist denim. Who he is doesn't matter. The public policing of money and morals destroys beauty such as this. For most of us, to grow up means learning to loathe what's cheap and what's free, when to value the latter surely is surely to be it. The pleasure of tonguing a pink-lipped stranger does not accrue 
It can be repeated endlessly and yet feel quite new. How stupid then to fetishize the few who blew it. They remain singular. I still regret that wasted night when in my sleeping bag with the stars as bored witness, I gave up my ways and suffered passively next to his gorgeous stillness. When the sun's light destroyed the night, I awoke untouched and filled with shame at the thought I'd missed an arc of existence that I might not now ever reclaim. My friend, the poet Rosemary Waldrop, who's in her 70s, wrote me and said, I like that cruising poem. <laughs> she said, I think that's something my generation didn't experience. <laughs> something in between. She thought it was something my generation was unique to experience because it was pre-HIV, but in fact, I was about 16 when that became the reality. This one's called The Occasion, and it's a little longer. I've been working in longer forms, and I find that there's a challenge in a 20, 25-minute reading, because sometimes I have poems that take 12 minutes to read. <laughs> so I, I wonder what Homer would do, you know, like, I guess you just excerpts then. Um, this is called The Occasion, and it has an epigraph from uh, E.A. Robinson, Edwin Arlington Robinson, who was a Maine poet, which is uh, the state that I now live in. From now, far now from all the bannered ways where flash the legions of the sun, you fade, as if the last of days were fading, and all wars were done. That's Robinson. Suddenly, on every facade, on the well-kept red brick of Ezekiel Treats, built 1869, on the crisp white siding of the immigrant couple hiding from their disingenuous and felicitous neighbors, on the festive mobile home struggling for relevance among lawn silhouettes and plastic sunflowers clacking a vulgar cheerfulness amidst the pocked bright plastic of dire poverty, the national symbol hung, and sometimes exhausted fluttered or on car antennas was ripped to shreds, as furious and ruined as an unhappy man enraged by the pathetic nature of his passive and soul-destroyed wife. It was a few days after the start of the war, and it was a war like many others, an atrocious elsewhere war that provoked the typical history lessons, those that we crammed to prepare for whenever the empire looks stealthily down upon a new spot of old earth with trumped-up salvation in mind. There is a perverse urgency to the history of obsolete places, a wayward poignancy surrounding the story of those about to be destroyed. For the sake of fifty, I will not do it. Pattern awareness saves no one. This war was, as always and again, imminent. It was unavoidable. There would be rhetoric for a while, but then there would be death, and some lives would improve, and others, well, it was hard to know, except death was certain. Elsewhere death, numbers in newsprint, and sometimes personal death, close to home and painful. There had already been some death, and some death was bound to lead to more, delicious to some, purposive, gorgeous, and addicting, death. Such was the mood of the times when some seven of us left the reading and sought the warmth of a living room. We had come together to talk and drink wine, to share our points of view. Our guest of honor, the poet, was tired but solicitous and hungry to relax with us. She had not traveled far in order to stay distant. She wanted news, personal news, gossip, 
and a confession of our feelings. It was a warm night. The electricity went down. It was a dark night. It was Halloween. She had read many poems about things lost in wars. Our reason, her family, his body, their memory, her child, his joy, their money, his sanity, her hope, their belongings, his picture, her wedding ring, his baseball glove, their history, the common stories, all of them. Where did they go? Had they been bullied away, replaced with a fake common story? Where are they? Not here. Any longer, they are gone. For the sake of 45, I will not do it. Though we had come together as friends to seek solace in talk, we were fearful, defensive, giddy, hysterical, dominant, and anxious in turn. We were the us and the them, the they and the what if, enemy and friend, accuser and accused. Our impotence was a red ball, and it grew large and organic between us. It filled the coffee table and strained our voices. It stained our cheeks. This ball was not called fear of death or loss of liberty. It was called, stupidly, love of life, and it made us quite ungenerous. Was it the first equation? Was it the warmonger's gift? Had it been granted, and were we complicit? Yes, yes, yes. And yet we could still speak and understand. Our voices had not been stolen. Yes, we could still talk, though there was also the issue of our ignorance, which was green, a green wall that magically formed into a labyrinth around us, brick by brick, encasing our bodies in a vulgar parody of playful shrubbery. It bewildered and muffled our voices, so that soon each of us began to feel that the others must be free of it. It was then that we lost whatever chance we had to help one another get out. One plus another, one and then another, no hope we might help one another get out. When we began to speak about power, the student among us contributed. It is my belief that women have much more power than men. It was a form of inflated deference, but also a provocation, and thus our protest fueled his point and drove him to the fervent edge in confirmation of his tactic. He was the center and would extract our sympathy. He was denied the women he wanted. Was his desire, his birthright, cut down by the mighty female no? No, 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 no legal recourse when cut across the chest with a machete thrown into a toilet, raped, in the aftermath of genocide when women hate men, when semen floods the streets and everywhere it smells like death. Mostly this hatred restrained by a thin skein of peace. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. The cat wandered in and was ignored as she rubbed against the wicker chair. The war at hand had taken all of our thought and all of our imagination. For all we knew, we might grow used to it, might even find relief from our quotidian fixations, from justifying these drinks, these spaces of discussion, these feelings of despair, this wine, this anger, this hunger for knowledge, this pretense, this moral confusion, and so on. Wearing a dark blue velour blouse, loosely comfortable yet ceremonious, our guests spoke of mothers and sons, of grief and loss, of worship and invisible things, of the difficult vigil we must always keep against the invasion of our minds. She was emotional, or so said one of the men, fearing, I suspect, what seemed apparent, that she cared little for reason. 
thrown off kilter by the attention we gave her. Some of us were transfixed by her passion, by her freedom to speak without concern for judgment. She did not fear us, mild-mannered bullies, pummeling each other with data. I don't care what you think of me, she said. I am the oldest one in this room. I have suffered. Fear cannot hurt me. My body is knowledge, my mind's spirit. Will a law-strewn personal history swallow or create our relevance? Does the permission to silence others come with the authority to speak? Is the authority to speak the authority to condescend to those without authority who, by definition, cannot speak? Up from historical silence into the newfound power of speech, only to find waiting there the awesome silence of the ongoing duty to those who are still unable to speak. Safely, the day had been conducted. The ending seemed appropriate and warm. Our private space held public debate. We could breathe. Outside, the symbols hung silent, for the night was quiet and unusually warm for that time of year. The softness of the space allowed for confessions. How onerous I find the American flag, be though it may the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Would that I were now far from all the bannered ways. Would that this symbol could address disquiet. In the flag I see gun appearing, the stripes, the barrel, the stars like bullets, and I half expect, expect, as a conspirator must, these traitorous visions transparent to all surrounding men. A circle of consensus formed around these words, which according to one among us, did little more than express a more heinous reflection of the conformity outside, there on Ezekiel Treat's house, built 1869, there on the crisp white siding of the couple who had recently moved to this country, there on the mobile home by the shell of a rusted pickup. And we, generally proud of our opinions, did not understand the deeper meaning of these seemingly alien lives. Our very faith in our own understanding made it by definition at fault. These words were reflected back on the speaker, who had become by his comments the new center, and through the labyrinth the debate grew warm, warmer, until it finally burned so hot it seared the trust between us. For the sake of thirty, I will not do it. Intent misread dried up the common ground, it turned arid and soon after unlivable. All that, it want, that had once thrived died. The designs of the past had marked us, for better or worse and no amount of preparedness or cash could serve to save us when, like targets, we stepped out into speech, powerless to know the future or which way the tide of common prejudice, though it be shaped by the uncommon few, would turn at any given moment. For the sake of twenty, we will not do it. Hold up, separated from the outside world, together for one fleeting night, after which our guest of honor would fly away, and we returned to daily work, one by one, we finally said good night. Nothing prevented us from taking our leave. We were not snowbound. We were not family. Once the occasion was over, we had no reason to stay. It had pulled us together to talk, to drink wine, and to share our points of view. It had pulled us together to redefine the sum and substance of the common ground. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Had we stood upon it that evening through our rootless, powerless thought, or had it eluded us, this so-called common ground? That's a poem that's inspired by a 19th century poem by John Greenleaf Whittier, 
very famous poem called Snowbound, in which people are snowbound, which in Maine is a very common experience. And they have a discussion about abolitionism and an argument. Um, and it's just a very clever device to kind of bring in opinions of the day. I'm going to be one more from Clampdown. This one um, has a reference to the painter George Stubbs, who was a British painter um, who famously painted horses. And I just saw one of his paintings in the Yale Center for British Art, so I was inspired by that. Because um, I had only ever seen his paintings at the Tate Gallery in London when I was much younger. You are not an image, and I cannot choose to remember you. I remember the look on Nurse Diesel's face as she ate her fruit cup, a slight mustache dusting her lip in Mel Brooks' high anxiety. But I cannot remember a single spoon entering your mouth. I have near-perfect recall of the grotesque old woman hanging in the National Gallery, and the sleek coats of Stubbs' horses with their high-strung eyes rolling back in their heads against the walls of the old Tate. But of your similar ocular dramas, I have no adequate picture. In moldering snapshots, you are there, but you aren't. A level emotion provoked by an image, hollow and shameful, like an orgasm coaxed from a dispassionate body, a cruel exploitation of instinct. Antiseptic, odorless visual memory. It works with art and film, but becomes mere tedious recall when applied to the natural unfolding of things which is, via the photo album, a self-justifying story shown without drama to eyes from which politeness has driven the life. Would that there were no photographs. A documentary impulse driven by millennial fears or spiritual unrest, today's maladies. They cannot compete with the irreducible gentle eddy of wind, the familiar sweetness which seems to recapture several lost lifetimes, illusory maybe, but possessed of the quality most lovely of evanescence, a beautiful privacy belonging to no one, not even the skin it thoughtlessly taunts into shivers of pleasure. Art stops change, and thus we can see it. My own face is less clear to me than the faces of a thousand starlets immortalized upon the screen. What will I see the next time I see it, mirror reflected, busy with hygienic chores? I will see something, fear perhaps, or the denial of change, but I will not see what others see, nor will a picture make a difference. And now I'm just going to read a couple poems from them, three poems from them, new work. This is called A Foolish Consistency. Some of you might recognize that line, very famous. A foolish consistency. There is a fine reversal of desire that subtly overtakes the wake of years' hard-spent refining taste, reading this but never that, learning to discriminate against the prejudice of time, at first, but later in adherence to its logic. Discrimination narrows options about which we are breathless in our youth when time is an endless, omniscient thing just beyond the ego, toxic mercury bolting away from undisciplined, voracious hungers. When I was young, I courted the unfathomable permanence of books. Back then, before the internet, they were still difficult to find, and seemed a miracle, especially rare neglected books of rare neglected knowledge. The spiked-up enthusiasms of the gung-ho are easily winded when shapeless, 
Life and death insights in the classroom evanesce when pedaling home with thoughts of food, a favorite show, the stiff tag tickling the skin behind your infant neck. No idea could compete until I fell in love with work. The painful shaping of discrimination kept that love at bay. I was afraid to write a thing I did not mean and knew not what I meant. Underneath the ego's needs an unsuspected truth awaits, which all unfixed I went towards through composition's problems. It was discrimination told me poetry could solve them. A few wrong loves along the way have all but been forgotten, shedded in the refinement of belief. A fine reversal of desire has taken shape, its genesis erased. I can't look back nor forward, and though I'm still misled by love, it does not feel like love at all, but just a vague sensation of what was once not and now is. This is called um, Not That Disappointment. I am inappropriate. I feel it in every said thing, in every enthusiasm, desire, wish, but mostly in every unsettling ambition. I live for the light in the dark of history, the ease of accomplishments after the fact. It will all seem inevitable after the fact. The irritable need to remove the disturbance of how I am failing in so many ways and having lost myself and their values, the distance between you and me is abolished. Might I speak to you in the quiet of your tower? 1571, the re reader replaces the dead. 1919, the dead speak to the writer of ambitious verticality. A mind that prefers conversation with vanished spirits and the not yet living. When I think of it, I too would like to become a father late in life, to awaken to the sweetly sour doingness of infancy, dozing at the foot of my toasty bed. The room's vacancy now filled with the emptiness of past bedrooms would be filled with a child's potential. I would write poems to that potential. I would shut out the world and think only of it. It would be a literary desire, a dream not of structure, but of substance. We can play at structure, can play at it, build categories of welcome that yet remain empty, while substance becomes a book, a desk, a library. The leisure to imagine that in talking to God, the whole of history might listen in. There you are, against a backdrop, standing sober in velvet, holding a discarded book, aware of the cool air on your skin, oblivious to the forces that would block your journey if they knew the extent of your inappropriate ambition, Baldwin in the Harlem stacks, raging against his stepfather. A glorious resistance to a deadening system becomes you, down on your knees, resigned to embodying a shattered sequence of a broken soul in a broken tower, the dream of the child at the foot of the bed, asleep that is yourself. And finally, I'll finish with this poem, which is going to be published in a journal called A Public Space. And this is called Be Careful. The poet's skin is like that of a frog. I have been advised against that title. <laughs> I resisted. There is a way in which I can be distracted from what matters. Work and its allures. To make another, another's woes your business. To seem busy. 
and feel the pleasant purpose of temporary urgencies. We walk away knowing what we will do and then forget to do it, interpose, a couch on which to doze a while, scenes of the once bright world drifting through the swirl of the lazy, overfed mind. I have no illusions regarding my accomplishments. Knowledge is not something I am hoping to find, but feels rather like the wave bumps beneath the blue plastic of a too soft waterbed. I feel awkward on it, unable to orient or get up. Denied hard surety, I am yet quite comfortable bobbing around a top half fact like a giddy fool who speaks his secrets to the moon the moment no one is looking. Meanwhile, some are holding forth. Some seem to know what others will be impressed by. Some have conviction, at least in public. Others quietly move along, honoring the persuasions of their youth, lying to themselves. Some await discovery, growing anxious with the years. Others are afraid to tell you. The outside wants in. The inside would like to be left alone, to parse out its prerogatives in soporific silence. The body provides all the form we need. Me, I'm falling asleep, not awaiting inspiration, but for food to court my interest and my mood to lift. I love the world in its wrongs and do not feel equipped to solve them. Others strut solutions. Go to it, I say, bored with the small-time secular pulpit. Simplicity will win my heart. Tell this to the balsa wood bug clinging to the screen door. His fragility is the kind of fleeting beauty that portends destruction. Logics are demanded. But wait a while, listen, be quiet, and observe. Your mind has become enamored of puzzling out structure. It does not become you, O poet. Who will now take the wind's dictation, atomize life into light, bring us to the meaning and not the explanation? Build instead of footnote. History will take care of the rest. Thank you very much.